welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. If you're unfamiliar with us, Sales Schema is a fractional new business team for growth-focused marketing agencies and related marketing service companies. Today, we would like to give you free access to our latest webinar slash live training, and that's titled, How to Sell Agency Services in Uncertain Times. This webinar is going to show you how to prospect and generate meetings with your audience at scale effectively in a sort of a weird economic climate without hurting your brand. So to get tangible, some things that we did, we co- we basically did a live workshop on agency to brand prospecting with around 70 agency owners. We covered the multi-channel nurture process we have been using and that we're planning on using in the coming months for ourselves and our clients. And we covered thought leadership actions for plugging your agency into the right audiences and generating inbound opportunities at scale. So if you'd like to get access to the free webinar, you can go to saleschema.com slash crisis prospecting, one word. Again, that's saleschema.com slash crisis prospecting. Today on the show, I'm very excited to bring on Rob Jollis. He's a speaker. He's a best-selling author. He teaches, he entertains, he inspires audiences worldwide. That's not enough bona fides for you. He's also the author of Why People Don't Believe You, How to Change Minds, Mental Agility, The Way of the Road Warrior, uh, and other books beyond that. So that was all kind of lazy. That was me reading off of his bio. But what really matters is that we got into what sales looks like in a remote world, how to basically move to the Zoom style of selling and what is transferable and what's not. That's what's really important. Um, and there was there's very few people that I would trust to go over this sort of thing uh, more more than Rob. So without further ado, please give it up for Rob Jollis. Rob, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, be, being in, in a space where you're doing sales training, I want to kind of head off the first objection that I think a lot of our audience probably runs into with, with sales coaches, sales trainers, and authors like yourself, which is, you know, is this going to work for me? You know, yes, this works for everybody else. We are special snowflakes. And, you know, a lot of the times for, you know, in our world, clients are selling branding or creative services and things that are more intangible. And there's a complex sales cycle and there are a lot of stakeholders. So, Maybe we could start there and just, I'm sure that that's something you've run into for years and just what your response is to that sort of objection. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a legitimate objection because I think um, one of the biggest mistakes made in sales training is, um, you know, we'll obsess on the training, but how are we doing on the implementation? So I don't really think it's our training that fails us. I mean, I, I, I could just redirect you to open probes, which we, we learned, you know, on day one, by the way, 98% of us don't really use the open probes we think we're using, but, but let's just stay with the premise of some of the most basic moves. You're never, you're never going to get worse doing them. You're not, the problem is, are you going to implement what you're learning? And so um, I, I think that's a, you know, that's a casualty of sales training, and some of it falls on the sales trainers uh, clearly, uh, but some of it falls on that lack of uh, follow-through. And I don't expect the follow through to come from necessarily those who are teaching. I mean, it's got to come from the top down. So, um, and that means you have to have the stomach for it because like learning a, a kick serve in tennis, you're, you're not going to get the balls in quite as often as you used to. And then you're going to really improve, but you have to be able to stomach that dip while you're you know, learning a new process. And a lot of times it's not the, it's not the sales force, it's management that can't handle the dip. 
Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. And I've sort of found that my sales skills, it's sort of like a cup of water that has to be refilled all the time. You know, it's like, like there's just ups and downs. Um, and then when it does come time to sort of get back up to speed and learn new things, I often like to bounce around between different people and different thought processes and, you know, and, and so on. So I, I guess for, for people, you know, for our audience where you have an owner that's juggling a million different things and a lot of our audience also just doesn't identify as being in sales and doesn't take a lot of, you know, pride in that sometimes. Um, what, what is that, what does that training regimen look like? You know, how, how, how do you fit it in with everything else that you have to stay up to speed on? Wow, it's, it's a, there's a lot to that question. To yeah. So uh, let me just pack one part of it, and then you can just hammer away at me. But but the part about um, sort of some people resisting the sales training, resisting even admitting that they're selling, and don't they don't like the word. And and so the first thing in that type of training is we got to kind of demystify what selling is. And we have, to, we have to remind people that it's actually one of the kindest things you could do for another human being. And I, and I mean that. I mean, we, we look at sales as, and I was a, a life insurance salesman. So, you know, we look at this Rob Jollis, New York Life guy coming in and shoving us into a policy. And that's a, that's a really good stereotype if some people want to cling to. That's fine. But the fact is, we help people over their fear of change. We help people to make proactive decisions, not reactive decisions. People can find religion and find solutions all the time when you realize that, traditionally left to our own, you know, device, um, we fix small problems, not big problems. So the first thing we have to do before we even get near a sales model, I don't, and I don't care if it's a grizzled sales vet or just a person in human resources who wants to learn to persuade. We have to start defining the difference between uh, um, manipulation and influence. We have to, def- you know, which by the way is one word and that's intent. What is the intent of the persuasion or influence that's going on? But when we don't do that and we go, hi, here's a new sales model for you, and it's a good one, uh, we have a, a section of the audience that's always kind of locked into, I don't want to push people to do things they don't want to do. And the fact is, I do want to push people to do things they, they don't want to do as long as it's uh, in their best interest, ethical, and something that down the road, they're really going to need. I have no problem helping you pass your fear of change. That's why they pay me. Right, right. And can you dig into that a little bit more? Because you know, I, I, there's some people that would argue that manipulation is is everything. You know, it's whether it's for good or bad, or it's subtle or it's it's uh, aggressive. Um, everything is a form of manipulation. Me talking to you right now and asking you a question is a form of manipulation. So, wh- where do you draw those boundaries? Yeah, you know, and I go back to that word again, intent. So I'll give you a quick story. Uh, you know, um, I, I wrote customer-centered selling back in the 90s. And, you know, Simon & Schuster did real well. I, you know, it's got, you know, I'll make you more money. It's it's that sales book. But the, the most recent sales book I wrote was a book called How to Change Minds. And um, I got the, the great Brian Tracy to actually write a quote on the front cover, a quote I had to have actually sheepishly go back and say, I can't use the first one because it was about, I'll help you make more money. <laughs> yeah, Rob will do it. And uh, it was a wonderful quote, but that's not, what I, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people realize 
you know, that, that there was this, this fear of change that, that we've got to get people over. So you ask about manipulation and it's funny because the, there, it, there aren't two sales models around. There's one. Okay. So when I say intent, uh, when I opened up how to change minds, which is the only story the publisher took out, I had people, I, I said, hey, you're sitting on a bar stool and you're, you're, you're having a drink with a buddy who, as usual, has had too much to drink. And you, you, you ask for the car keys and as usually he says no and you ask a couple more times and the answer is no. And um, this time he never makes it home. He makes it to the hospital barely alive, but the two people on the road that he kills never make it home. Their family is destroyed. You know, they'll never get over that that horrible a night situation, life change. Uh, n- neither will um, you, of course, the person who uh, the person who committed this crime. But what about again, you sitting on that bar stool? You had an opportunity to get the car keys. Okay, you couldn't do it. If I can show you a way to do that, am I manipulating you? That's I, again, I'm not trying to help me here. I'm trying to help you. And, and Dan, let me just borrow one more thing here. I think one of the culprits, and remember, I, I'm, I'm at the bullseye here. I'm the guy who's teaching sales for 35 years. I think one of the things that I've had to sort of reevaluate in my own mind are sales contests. Because, um, and not all of them, but, but think about it. Dan, you would never push somebody into something they didn't want to do because you're a good guy and so you're not manipulative. But what if you're two sales away with, you know, from a cruise? What if you're three sales away from a bonus of twenty, thirty thousand um, dollars, and now you're you you you're sitting in front of a prospect? What's your move? They don't really need this, not now. What's your move? So you can see that we. I'm not going to budge from my line of it. Really does come down to intent, but I am going to tell you that. That line is a lot slipperier than people think, particularly with the way we incent and push our salespeople. Yeah, and there's so much to dig into there that's really interesting. And maybe the first thing is is incentive structures, you know, because there's lots of different incentive structures, lots of new innovation in that in that role or in that area. You know, there's certain companies that will have a pool and everybody draws from the same pool. Then there's the classic just commission only. And then there's all sorts of things you can do. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on on that. And I know it's domain dependent, so it's not one way to do it across the board, but maybe just your thoughts on the evolution of incentive structures and what you see, uh, you know, for people that are doing this really well these days. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked the question because I have one favorite uh, and, um, you know, I've been in the, the um, I'm in every industry. I'm, I, you know, I don't know if you know this, I've, I've done 12 of them sales seminars for NASA. I, you know, I do hostage negotiators, polygraphic examiners, because I, I, I'm dealing with, you know, helping people get over that, that change. But one of the favorite models I have, and Toyota's been a client of mine forever, maybe 20 years, in the car industry, some of the, not all of them, but some of the car manufacturers tie that incentive that you're talking about to the customer survey, the customer experience, okay? Meaning, okay, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to swing with a couple of nasty tactics and I'm going to get Dan's business because I want that cruise. But Dan will wake up. <laughs> Dan is going to go, well, what did I do here? And, and, you know, down the road, that gives, gives the sales a black eye, gives that company a black eye. But what if we took that bonus, that incentive, and we said, we're going to do, we're going to survey after all this is over. And if our client tells me that, that meeting with Dan and this, the purchase is over, 
was extraordinary and exceptional. It's a, and that w- that's what he, that's his feedback. That's what I want to incent you on. I don't want to incent, in other words, I, it's like golf. I think a lot of times we're looking for how far the ball went down the fairway. And I'm trying to measure the swing a little bit. I, we'll get distance, we'll get all that. See, if we have customers that evaluate that experience that way, our sales will grow. We will do fine. Uh, so to answer your question, there's different models out there, but I love that particular model. So I think that's the fairest way to do it for the client. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. That's who we're and, looking out for. Yeah, and I like the sound of it. I guess what I'd be skeptical of is incentives are bigger than just what you do internally because there's like there's market incentives, there's these macro incentives. And you know, what if, what if you can't get the best talent now because somebody else can make a bigger commission and make more money elsewhere. So now you're not getting the best salespeople. So that, that's, that's what I wonder about is does there, does it need to be rethought on a bigger level or, or is there something that, you know, kind of reward that incentivizes people on an individual level, but also makes everybody row in the right direction because <laughs> that's sort of that's, that's that's a meandering big question i guess yeah. well you know i think it's actually very legitimate uh, yeah. i think um you know it's funny and i happen to be one of them you know which is a shocker to people my number one it's incentive particularly at xerox wasn't money uh i really enjoy recognition <laughs> i i you know which i don't know if this number still holds but for for a long time there was a number floating around that said 85% of the reason why people terminated when they would go through their exit interviews was it had to do with a lack of recognition. So um, a lot of times, I think it's sort of old school that people think we're obsessed with money. Yes, I want to take care of my family, uh, but I also want to keep my life in balance. So there are many things that incent me. If you So to answer your question, it wasn't money for me. And, and uh, you know, I, I need enough uh, and I don't, I, please don't be insulting. And, but I'd like to hear that I did a good job. Uh, I, you know, I'd like to go to that next meeting that I don't normally get invited to. I have a list. If you'd like, I'll send it to you. You can send it out to your, your clients. Uh, I'll give you 20 ways to incent people that has nothing to do with money. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and in sales, I think everyone just stereotypes us as, want all that money. You know what we want in sales? We want to be uh, compensated for the work we do. So, because uh, I happen to think we're, we're actually all on uh, commission, you know, people, you know, and then think about it, Dan, what's the, what's, why do people really not want to be in sales? I don't want to be on commission. Okay. I, I want a nice steady salary. Okay. Well, you can have that. Um, but I tell you what, you can, you can exceed everyone's expectations. That's what you're going to get paid. Uh, and if you're me, I wake up in the morning and I'm kind of obsessed with exceeding my customers' expectations. I don't know. Call me old-fashioned. I wouldn't mind being compensated for it. So, um, because if I don't, by the way, they're going to ask. They're going to put me on performance and you know correction. And well, in three months th- I'll be gone. Yeah, yeah, and I think the important thing is that we're we're all taking on risk. You know, if you're in a job, you're taking on risk. If you own the company, mm-hmm. if you're in sales, but if you're in sales, you you're much closer to it. You can see it. It's out in front of you as opposed to accumulating somewhere where you can't see it and then you get a pink slip due to forces outside of your control, you know? So yeah. that's, that's kind of, kind of what it looks like, which I think has, you know, 
pros and cons, but uh, has a lot going for it. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I, you know, I work with a lot of companies that go through mergers and acquisitions. Do you know the safest people in almost any company are the salespeople? Now, not all the salespeople, okay, <laughs> but it, you, you'll be, and, and I'm not trying to sell everybody on being a salesperson here, but I will tell you that um, if you think about it, I don't care what kind of a merger has occurred. The top 20% of the sales force is the most secure in the company. Okay. I don't care which side of that fight. And they're free agents. You know, these are people that can bounce around easily uh, and so on. Yeah. I mean, you were, you were running your own business in a sense. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And one thing we talked about in the past is the transferability of sales and and salespeople, which I I find kind of counterintuitive. So if you were the CMO of a consumer packaged goods company, it would be pretty hard or relatively hard for you to go become the CMO of a tech startup or something like that. But if you were an amazing salesperson in, IT, you could probably bounce around easier between industries because sales is sales is sales in a lot of ways. Or let me know if you disagree. But I 100% agree with you. And we are in the minority on this one. And I, I recently wrote a piece about this because I one of my passions is I've been volunteering for about nine years to help people in career transition. And so I'm yeah. working with staffing agencies, et cetera, tightly. And I can't tell you how many times until I decided I got to write this piece where I hear well, a guy's got you know really good candidate, and I can see it sold a lot, but he hasn't sold buttons. Okay? Yeah. It's like okay, yeah. but I could take I, I could lock a guy in a closet for two days; he'll he'll know buttons. Right. But, but I, it takes a, a talent to be able to sell, and uh, the buttons are the easy part. You know what I mean? Yeah. But most yeah. people miss that. But but why do you think that is? Like why why do you think that sales is transferable, but marketing is is not and has a lot more complexity? Because when you deal with persuasion or influence, selling, whichever word we want to use here, there really is a repeatable, predictable process. We know the decision cycle that clients go through. It's six stages, three decision points. I, I, you know, it, it really hasn't changed all that much. A conversation's a conversation. We're doing it through Zoom, but a conversation's a conversation. So guys like Jollis can, can wander around through all these weird little uh, companies and industries. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I work with 50 financial institutions, but I, I, as I mentioned, I work with all kinds of kind of kooky companies. The process of persuasion really doesn't change. Even with, I do parent groups, the process of persuasion doesn't really change. But marketing, now, that's a little bit different. I, just because I sold a Xerox copier doesn't mean I can come wandering in and say, well, and because I, you know, I marketed a copier, I'm now going to market uh, that, that chemistry kit, whatever it is. Um, now, the argument is true, which is, I think you're going to have to learn the button industry for this one. I think you're going to need to understand what we do. Because I don't, maybe you, you do, I don't know of a repeatable, predictable marketing process yeah, that, and yet that fits all industries. Yeah. And yet there's so many people trying to sell something like that, trying to sell that process. And it's just usually I've BS. Act, yeah. I'm actually, and I rarely do this, you know, for a guy who's you know been on the road for almost 40 years, I don't like traveling a whole lot when I'm not the speaker. Okay? Mm-hmm. But I've actually gone to a couple thinking, I, I, I'm, believe me, I'm looking for that, the, the, the golden egg. I'm looking for something because I see advertisements for it. So you can market something, a, a repeatable, predictable process that transfers over. Okay, I'll buy, I'll buy a ticket. I have. I've been disappointed. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see it. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of uh, people, you know, trying to get trying to do square peg round hole sort of stuff for for a lot of different areas. Um, I guess one question is, you know, so so we're kind of on the same page with that. There's a lot of complex, a lot more complexity in marketing, and you need to understand an industry versus sales where it's about psychology and and the the human experience, and it's more transferable. You know, I, I'm a kind of a, a loose student of you know spin selling and then the challenger sale and sort of seeing these different milestones in the history of, of sales training. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like what, what has changed in the way that sales processes have happened based on bigger, you know, macro changes? What, what do you think has changed in the last 30 or 50 years or whatever it might be? Okay. And first of all, let, let's give a shout out because you just hit on the number one model that I do think revolutionized sales. Forget them all, all the others. It's spin selling. Absolutely changed the game. And that is a British scientist who actually created that model. Never Neil sold Rackham, a thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Neil Rackham. You got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I've had the pleasure of meeting a number of times. Yeah. A very interesting guy. Not a salesperson, a scientist. Yeah. But mm-hmm. we needed a scientist. The reason why that changed, by the way, in 20 seconds is Rackham was the one who said, and I mean, I'm not taking a shot at any competition here. It's just a process that, you know, I know you all, you all seem to be cuddling up to needs-based selling and people buy based on needs and, you know, find the need and, you know, which is all relative and good. But the only problem is it couldn't be further from the truth. People don't do buy based on needs. It's a completely flawed model. It's been out there for decades and decades. And Rackham said, you know, okay, you can keep doing that. But actually, I'll just show you that the problem shapes the need. It's really the problem that we're after. And when the I mean, problem gets big enough, we probably want to be talking about the problem and problem solve the problem. So one, when Rackham opened that door, that's when everybody else rushed in with their own kind of problem. Not everyone, by the way, but problem-based model. Okay. That's where I rushed in. I was actually a, a spin. It was called a D-squared certified spin instructor. I, I only taught it. <laughs> Sounds I like a fitness certi- class. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I'm getting great shape. I only, not only taught it, I could certify it. I was intimate with spin. Okay. It changed me. So I don't think that the, the process has changed all that much as long as, you know, it's, it's question-based, it's understanding, understanding open-ended questions. I'm hoping it's separating those problem-related questions from trust questions, meaning I can't walk in and go, hi, Dad, uh, what problems are you having? So I, I, I do need to understand you before I earn the right to ask you about what isn't working on the podcast, okay? But, but that hasn't changed. I'll tell you the one thing I think that has changed, and that's freaking information. <laughs> we got so much information now that it's, it's sort of the Achilles heel to most of sales is that we, I think the biggest mistake people make, salespeople make is they're dependent on, on all their product knowledge and they're obsessed with the product knowledge part of this because it's so accessible that they forgot that, that again, that's the easy part. You know, it's probably the most overrated part. Learning about your product is not sales training. Learning how to get somebody to want to hear about it and what to do after you explain it, that's the sales training, okay? But when we start putting in features and benefits, features and benefits, and call it sales training, that's where we're, we're killing ourselves. But that's the only part. I think it's the information is much more accessible. But the, right. the bookends, mm, don't think so. Well, you know, we run into this a lot and so do our clients. And, and for us, we focus on on marketing agencies and, you know, we're doing lead generation. So we're sort of this weird intersection of sales and marketing. And 
we, you know, I know with not certainty, but, you know, 90% certainty what somebody's situation is when I get on the call and it's, you know, it's a marketing agency. They've gotten from zero to one on referrals and personal networks. They might get a little organic traffic. They have an owner and maybe one other person doing sales as a hobby. Uh, you know, so there's, there's certain facts that are there. And then I feel like a lot of my process is sort of this kabuki dance of making them feel like I've listened to them and that I've dug a lot deeper than I need to, <laughs> you know, yeah, to but create. You're right. You're right. right. I, I have to have to say it. It's that, um, you know, at this point I have um, told you a bunch of, a bunch of banks, tons of banks. But if I walked into the bank then and said, um, wait a minute, before you open your mouth, I've I, I worked with so many banks I know more about your bank than you know about your bank, and I'll prove it to you. The good news is I'd be right. Bad yeah. news is who would want to buy anything from me? You know, pompous, bald guy, get out of yeah, here. Exactly. So um, you're right. We do, and you know, in fairness, we, there are little niches and brandings, and we learn a little bit. But the, the dirty little secret is we know a lot more about and should know a lot more about that client than they might think. It's their story to tell. And the, the more disciplined we are in, let, in letting them tell that story, which does have some twists and turns we need to learn, but letting them do that, that's where trust is born. Without, without trust, where else are we going? Right, right, exactly. And there are things that come up that, you, that I wouldn't have known without asking. Right, right. But, uh, but sometimes I do feel like I, I, I could you know, bring the questions down to like three or four questions and get everything I would need as opposed to spin selling, you know, it's because spin selling is written in whatever the sixties or seventies before the internet was a thing. And you, before people had much information at all. So it made sense that you would have to have this like exhaustive interview process. Um, so, so, so anyway, it's, it seems like there's, there's a lot that when you specialize and when you focus on a particular area, you can come in armed with. Yeah. Well, once again, as a D squared certified spin instructor, <laughs> I must remind you that, um, uh, and that was the jumping board. So I, I you know, Neil's doing fine without my help. But you know, we expand and contract based on product, based on personality, et cetera. So if I'm dealing with a dominant client or something, and I were spinning them, um, I'd still probably do most of my homework before I walked in there. Right. Um, it's it's you know, I don't have to play the game. The more that client talks, the more that client's going to like me. I need to move. So um, you know, it does depend on the personality and product. Yeah. In all fairness, for for Neil's sake. Right, right. And I, I didn't mean to make this an ad for, for spend selling, you. but it's okay. hard it's hard to avoid that book. So, <laughs> but to bring this to your stuff, you know, so and yeah. why people don't believe you, uh, you, you argue that it's not the words, it's the tune. It's it's how people say things that matter. So to make this, you know, hopefully tangible or practical, what are some of those those examples that you run into of how, of people presenting things or saying things the wrong way when you're working with clients? I think it's I think it comes that well. You know, it's almost like music. You know, some of us just do it, Dan. Um, we do it naturally, just like holding a note. You know, you play a note and we can hit that note. And other people, they're, you know, we refer to them musically as tone deaf. They, you know, you go bing and they go, ha, ah, they just can't get the note. All right, well, don't be a singer. But I am of the belief, you know, as a trainer and a, as a, you know, somebody cons and a consultant that I can teach anybody to sell. But some people come in with a bit of a head start. And to answer your question, I think it usually falls into the music part, falls into three things. It's, it's pitch, it's pace, and it's pause. I call it the three Ps, meaning um, I can naturally sort of hear that pitch. When, you, when I get excited, I go up, and sometimes I'll bring it down. I, you know, and, and that actually holds your interest. Uh, 
Some people can't hear that. It kind of goes in a little mono. But we can actually teach them to pitch and do, do um, exercises where we actually stretch their range a little bit. Pace is the same thing. I don't want to just I, – I actually moonlight for 11 years now um, as a live auctioneer. I'm, I am licensed mm-hmm. in 16 states, um, only for charities, and I do it as a way of giving back. But, boy, when you catch me at an auction, and particularly when I get into my chant, I am moving, okay? And the audience loves it, but I don't chant all the time. Okay, uh, as I'm selling the item, I slow down. We have to learn that changing that pace also makes us more authentic, more believable. That we change pace when we're having a beer, for goodness sakes, you know, with a buddy. Uh, why aren't we doing it with a client? Uh, and then there's the pause, which I think is the most overrated piece, or and and uh, not overrated. It's it's underrated. Uh, it it is um, as I'm doing right now. I think it's valuable to pause, not necessarily where I put it, but if you ask me a question that's deep, even if I have the answer, why would I, why would I just rattle off an answer? Again, here's that part where we've got to play that role of let it land, pause, take it in, particularly if, if I'm asking you a deeper question and I'm asking, Dan, what, what's the impact of this podcast if we can't do such and such? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you answer it, why would I want to rattle in another question? Why don't I pause more? What am I afraid of? Uh, I'm going to be more credible. So it's, you know, it's a book and I don't want to go through the whole book, but to answer your question and pinpoint, I think it comes down to those three things. And if we can't hear the music, if we can teach it, and there are techniques for that, I think that helps. Uh, to, and I hope that helped answer your question. Try to pause. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you, here's the funny part. <laughs> For people who can, I saw your fingers moving. <laughs> so yeah. On yeah. a phone call, it's really hard to pause. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, fortunately, face-to-face or with, uh, you know, a virtual, I can see that the person, and, and by the way, I, I usually like grab my chin or, you know, I, I have my pause move. Uh, when I'm, yeah. Mm, it can be painful. Yeah. yeah. You know, on sales calls, especially when you're, you're waiting for an answer, I got, I'll try to think of something else. Like I'll think of, you know, baseball or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just uh, little devices like that. Yeah. In training, by the way, <clears throat> um, we pause when we're conduct, when we're doing a workshop or something, when we ask a question, I, is anybody have any questions? Good. Let's Let's move on. That's not that what happened to the pause. So the only way, because our mind moves very quickly, particularly in a sale or whatever, it, you know, three seconds feels like 20 seconds. So it's funny. People might not be able to see it. You just did was you actually start moving and counting with your fingers. In fact, I teach professional speakers and trainers, put your arm behind your back when you're, when you're in front of an audience and count to get ready for this eight when you've asked a question because it'll really be oh, that's, six that's an and, eternity uh, yeah it's an attorney and my my running bet is count how many times at about four or five you get a question because a lot of those people are actually processing what you said and they're okay well like, wait a minute did that it, it takes them a minute then, then the hand goes up or then the question we blow through that stop sign we miss it and boy do i want questions from uh, in a sale or uh, from an audience yeah. And for me, the other thing, which I started doing a long time ago is, is standing up, you know, standing right now, standing now for this interview. Uh, I just find I just speak better, <laughs> think better, you know, and it's healthier. It's just a good excuse to not be sitting all day. So it's well, something. I, yeah. Can we talk about that for 10 seconds? Please. Um, I actually, um, you know, put on these programs of, of how to communicate virtually better. And, um, 
you caught me sitting actually i'm sitting there going how how am i why am i sitting didn't mean to shame you yeah it's it's okay (laughs) it's when i'm on the other side of it when i'm when i'm interviewing somebody i'm up when i'm doing a program i'm up and when i'm selling them up so i actually do recommend um you don't have to replace all your furniture but uh I, you know, Veridesk, they're probably the, the, the bigger player, but Winston, there's some really good pieces that will fit on your desk that will allow that monitor and everything to go up and down with you. And you're right. Not only will you get some good exercise, but tell me you're not going to have just a little bit more bounce and energy in that voice and, and, and activity if you're standing. So a uh, big believer in standing. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed I'm sitting out there. Yeah. And, I, and and so to follow up on all this stuff, yeah. uh, and this is this is might be a tough question, but how, how much of this stuff is a is a a pre fee set up meal versus buffet, right? How much of this stuff is stylistic versus stuff that you just need to do between pitch pause, pace pause, you know, all all the all these different things. There's there's I know there's people listening right now that are thinking, okay, you know this this is great, but I'm kind of introverted. I don't know if I can get into a style like this. Is there something that I can do differently, or is this or is this something I need to learn and adapt? Okay, all right, all right. Take a seat, Dan. (laughs) I got this one. No, not really. Okay, and and for anybody listening, I want you to listen really carefully to the answer to this question because it's really important. I got to meet the greatest salesperson who ever lived. Um, you know that that's not that's not why you're sitting right now. But um, I will tell you that the greatest salesperson who ever lived in my mind was was the great Ben Feldman. I doubt anyone's ever heard of him. Uh, he did write a couple books, not in print. Uh, they didn't sell very well. He was deathly afraid to speak in front of an audience. Uh, I call him the best ever because of his numbers. Um, I don't care how many books you wrote. I don't care how many seminars you delivered. I want to know what you sold. If you're walking up to me and tell, tell me you're the best, okay. And when Ben Feldman sold, and he was a New York Life agent, he sold, um, in, in, let's put it this way, in the number two person in the entire insurance industry back, and I'm in the early 80s now, but hang on with me. Um, he, uh, the number two person in a pool of a quarter of a million salespeople sold roughly 50 million of insurance. Number, number three was 49 million, 48 million. Ben Feldman that year sold 151 million. And we're in a pool of a quarter of a million. Uh, he did it years before, years after, 1.6 billion in his lifetime, 16 year string of a million a month in sales. It, it, it staggers the mind. So we obviously know what he looks like. He's kind of got, you know, an Alec Baldwin, Rob Jollis, monster of a man. Uh, I, when I met him, um, and he's no longer with us, but um, he stood about five foot three. He was large. We'll leave it at that. He had hair like Larry on the Three Stooges. Spoke with a distinct pronounced lisp like this um, and, and sold in the sprawling metropolis of East Liverpool, Ohio. Um, I'll tell you as a 21-year-old, um, uh, because I, I was pretty hot as a New York Life agent, they nicknamed me the Rocket, and, uh, and they set up this lunch, the Rocket is going to meet Ben. And I, I walked in there, you know, all big-headed, and there he was, you know, uh, but Within 20 seconds after being stunned, I sat down and I went, oh my goodness, there's, there's, there's technique and there's process and they're, they're different. And, and where people, to answer your question, where people get tangled up is they keep meshing the two together, okay? Listen, Ben Feldman didn't possess one style, you know, classic style piece that you would associate with a great salesperson, and yet he outsold the world. Doesn't that prove the point that when, we, when, we, when we're working with anyone, Dan, Rob, doesn't matter, 
don't, don't, we're not asking you to copy our style. If you're introverted, stay introverted. You'll, ben Feldman was clearly an introverted person and lethal, okay? Uh, now, he had some really solid techniques. We talk about asking open questions or, or problem-based questions or, or certain trial closes to test decision points. That's not style. That's technique. You can stylize how you want to say it. And um, so if we... This is where we lose people. I know I'm going a little long on this answer, no, but I got it. Let me thanks. I got to get. I got to get this off no, my I want chest. To roll. <laughs> yeah, I got. It's the we. I claim that in a sense we teach salespeople to fail because not only do we douse them in product information and call them sales trained. Okay, so now we have somebody who won't shut up and listen. Right. We then mentor them with Larry, who's been with us for 29 years, and Larry and Larry's like, my guy was a guy named Bill Creekmore. They called him Creek, and I remember spent a week with him, and he didn't even like me walking with me. And I would say things like, "Mr. Creekmore, when do you know when it's time to close?" And he'd say, "Boy, you'll see it in their eyes." And I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, you know," and I'm writing this down. So I've got too much product information. I'm copying somebody else's style, and it's, huh, "What do you know?" I'm struggling. So. Clearly, to answer your question, I believe anyone can sell as long as you commit to the style that you have naturally. And I promise you, if you put in repeatable, predictable techniques and tactics that make sense, and and let's get off this book a month club too. I don't need seven golf trainers. If you like Rackham, stay with Rackham. If you like Tracy, stay with Tracy. If you like Jollis, stay with Jollis. I don't care, but don't keep switching. Because um, what's your golf swing going to look like in 12 months with 12 different golf train instructors, right, all right. certified, you know? Yeah, and, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And we're sort of at this weird intersection where we're doing, you know, part sales, part marketing, I guess. And one thing that we ask our clients to do is, re, you know, when we write copy for you, read it out loud. Make sure mm-hmm. that you would actually say this if we're, if we're doing the outreach as you. So that makes perfect sense to me. So. To, to bring this forward, right, so as we're getting kind of towards the end of the time, um, as a thought exercise, so you have somebody like Ben Feldman or, or the, other, the other people that you mentioned that you respect, and they were selling in the 80s. Now we're in this weird juncture of history in 2020 where sales is done almost exclusively through Zoom like, we are, like we're doing right now. How would those guys have adjusted their style for this situation? Uh well, that's a good question. I know how I'm adjusting my style. I, you know, I, so, so how about, you know, look, these guys were, they're, they're on the Mount Rushmore. Some of the names I'm mentioning, I don't know if they're adjusted anything. I think it was an honor to buy from them, but how about the average guy? Okay. The sure. average woman. I think the adjustment of style is it's a couple of things. First of all, virtually, um, I find that we have to uh, shorten up our stories a bit. You notice that almost apologetically, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm going a little longer this way. Okay, just give me 10 more seconds. I have this, um, I call it a communication shot clock. You know, we got one in basketball, it's 24 seconds. We got a play clock in football, I think it's 35. Baseball better get their act together and get a pitch clock or we're gonna, that sport's going to die on the vine. So we understand that people are moving quicker. Everything is quicker. Information is quicker. I think one of the adjustments that needs to be made right now, um, not necessarily face-to-face, but certainly virtually, is we got to speed things up a little bit. Uh, My communication shot clock is typically 45 seconds. And what this audience might not know is when, when I spoke to you, Dan, before we started, one of the only questions I had was, Think about it. Time. How? What? What? Do, what do you like on answers? Because I'm obsessed with not going on too long. Um, I think we have to shorten them up. 
I would say 45 seconds to about a minute and 15. Remember, you have an audience that uh, you can't see their hands, but they might, they're opening up mail programs. They're, you know, they're, they're texting. They're doing all kinds of kooky things while you think they're focused on you. Okay? Sure, sure. And I think that, you, that you're right, and I appreciate your conscientiousness. At the same time, I disagree a little bit because – as we as we are having this interview, some news came out yesterday, and uh, a one Mr. Joe Rogan just got paid a hundred million dollars by Spotify to exclusively host his podcast over there. He's doing three hour long podcasts with people. You know, uh, there's there's no time limits at all, uh, and that's but, but how long, Dan? And, yeah. and and listen, write me a check for a hundred million, and, and <laughs> whatever you say is the answer is true. Yeah. But um, yeah. but remember. I'm not, I don't care if we, I, we go on. I, I've been putting on, still putting on three hour webinars. Okay. Sure. Um, now, you know, I do certain things, but I'm referring to actually um, telling stories, answering questions. In other words, the exchange of information during those three hours. I actually don't listen to Joe Rogan to certainly know who he is. Um, but I'm wondering how long he lets his guests go on for. Um, with responses to questions. Sure. And, that's and, a, I, and I don't know the yeah. answer, you know, uh, yeah. but, but, but let me give you part B. Let's let part A is if you're really good at it, go, I guess. But part B is I like to do something I call landing a story. I don't necessarily do it live, but a lot of times when I'm virtual, I will tell people, you know, they'll, they'll ask me about Ben Feldman, whatever, whatever, I'll bring up Ben Feldman, but I, I almost always will finish it with, and I tell you this story because, and I do that because I don't know where this audience is, particularly in a webinar situation where I've got, might have 80 people on this call. I don't know who's vacuuming, who's boiling eggs. I don't know what's going on the other side. Okay, they're all muted. But a lot of times what I'm doing when I say, and I mention this because or the reason why this is important is I'm trying to verbally pull them back into the conversation in case I've lost them. Live, I can see who's got them, who's looking down on the lap, you know, texting. I can't see this audience. I can't see the client. I can't see the audience. So I like to land them and shorten them a little bit. But I'll go as long as uh, – I never go less than an hour right, with, with a right. client. Well, I think you're, you're probably channeling something that's uh, very old and, and very primordial in a way, right? Like a lot of people are looking at podcasts like it's this shiny object, and it's really not. It's, we're sort of getting back to the way that you know humans transacted information for millennia. Um, and we just haven't been able to do it. We had this weird interlude from the printing press until a few years ago where that was the, the way information was spread because you couldn't spread audio. You know, you couldn't spread recorded audio very easily. Uh, so, so I think when you say, uh, let me tell you a story, there's something that's in the human hardware that once makes people perk up and listen because we did that over campfires forever. Yeah, good point. Could be. <laughs> who knows yeah uh, so i guess kind of kind of to, to wrap things up i'd love to hear what you're working on now and you know how all this is affecting your business and what you're doing uh you know one of the things i'm working on is um i jumped in like on may 6th of of interviewing anybody i get my hands on and um studying really the conversion of live to virtual um, i've spent most of my career trying to figure out how to generate income as a professional speaker and not be away from my family and friends. So uh, there's a lot of challenging and difficult situations out there. Um, but, you know, with loss comes gain sometimes. I'm actually enjoying the, the world of virtual delivery. But like you, I respect the fact that you, you can podcast, you can stand up and fight, which is exactly what you're doing. That's what I want presenters to do. So what I'm doing is 
I've put together some programs on selling virtually, uh, train, uh, uh, speaking virtually, communicating virtually, and packaging them. And I've been uh, actually delivering more programs than I normally deliver uh, when there isn't a pandemic. Um, and um, but I'm I'm enjoying it, and I want to get. I, I'm quirky this way. I don't want to be good. I want to be the best. And yeah. so I, I am looking for any ideas and thoughts, et cetera. So, you know, standing up, things like that. Those are smart ideas. And I, and, and it be, it's right now it's more of my passion to, to teach people that and, and to teach myself that it is the wild west of delivery right now out there. Yeah. And, um, uh, but, but I'm working on that. I, kicking around a book idea. Um, but, uh, this last one just came out and I'm, um, you know, I'm still promoting it a little bit. Um, you know, the, why people don't believe you, which by the way, uh, I have to tell you, it's, it's the most clunky title, um, because it, every, sticks. it, it sticks, but yeah. it's hard to recommend it because if I spoke to you and I said, Hey Dan, one, one last thing, I got the greatest book for you. This is per- it's perfect. It's just what you need. And I go, it's called why people don't believe you. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. It, it's kind <laughs> kind of slaps people when you say it. So I almost have to apologize when I say, but not for you, of course, but I think you'll enjoy it. Well, uh, I'm sure it's true, you know, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise I would close every single deal, right? So well, yeah, how about sometimes, <laughs> you know, dot, 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 sometimes. Um, but anyway, so I, I really think this, uh, the world, this virtual delivery isn't going anywhere. We are, we're going to get out. We're going to, you know, we will be back in restaurants and bars again and, and we'll be singing happy days or here again. I don't know when, but it's coming. Uh, but I don't want to lose the, what we just found, which is yeah. this is better than a phone call. And if I don't want to send an email to my client and sell, Oh my goodness. Talk about lazy. Uh, a phone is better, but boy, this is you know, other than right in front of you, this really is good. Let's let's learn to do it really well. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll, we'll see where it goes. I think there's going to be some some weird and crazy innovation around it. Yeah, in the coming months. So that makes sense. Rob, thank you so much. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, easy. J O L L E S dot com. Um, and uh, you know, I I actually started my own humble little podcast called Pocket Size Pep Talks. Uh, but I also I write something called a Blarticle. Dan, it's not a blog. It's not an article. It's a blog article, oh. uh, and I and I trademarked that one, by the way. Uh, and not because I the work I now hereby give the world permission to use it. Um, I just didn't want to build something and then be sued by somebody else. Went that looks like a good idea. Yeah. But uh, I've been writing them for eleven years. Uh, number three hundred and ten will be coming out uh, tomorrow. Uh, every other Friday, I release, and they're they're short and they're they're they got the this the personal touch of a blog. But I, I think. I'm a sales guy, so what's in it for me? What's in it for the audience? It's not a blarticle legally if there isn't something in it for the reader. So you'll find some stuff there anyway. That's something I enjoy doing. Awesome. Appreciate that. We'll get that linked up. Rob, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. Again, if you'd like to get your hands on our latest webinar all about how to sell agency services in uncertain times, learning how to prospect, learning how to get meetings at scale uh, in a tasteful way, in a way that actually works based on what we've learned from working with more than 50 agencies and doing more than 7,000 individual campaigns. You can do that by going to saleschema.com slash crisis prospecting. Again, that's saleschema.com slash crisis prospecting, one word. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode.